We're doing Genesis this semester, and uh, we're looking at Genesis 5, I mean, sorry, Genesis 11 this week, uh, a story maybe many of you are familiar with, the Tower of Babel. And uh, just to remind you of what we've done so far and what we're doing in Genesis, is it's the story from the very beginning, and it's the story, first of all, of how things were supposed to be, and how things got messed up. We all experienced pain and suffering. We're all a disappointment to ourselves, and everyone else is a disappointment to us. Genesis is how it got that way. And then in Genesis 3.15, after sins entered in the world, the Lord comes down and He addresses the serpent, uh, who is Satan, and He declares the end. And uh, the way Sinclair Ferguson said it is, the rest of the Bible is a footnote for Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15, God tells the serpent, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, referring, uh, referring to Eve, between your offspring and the offspring of the woman, and he, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's God declaring victory at the beginning. The rest of the Bible is a footnote explaining Genesis 3.15. In Genesis 11, what we're doing is we're following the two lines. We're following the two families. We're following the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. The offspring of the serpent are those who, like the serpent, throw off the authority of God and rebel against him. The offspring of the woman are those who are faithful. But what we find out is that the offspring of the woman both refers to a people but also to a person. And that the story of the Bible and for the bulk of the Old Testament is really this. It's really the preservation of the line of the woman. And uh, that the... That the servant is coming, the Messiah is coming. And we get to chapter 11, and what Noah's Ark, that episode, Genesis 6 through 9, and what chapter 11 are is they're actually parentheses, parenthetical statements in the kind of ongoing narrative of Genesis. Because you'll notice around, well, you don't, if you have your Bibles with you, you'll notice that there's just a long genealogy in chapter 10. And then you have these nine verses in chapter 11, and then you have more genealogy. And what's being depicted here, what the overall theme in these first 11 passages is just this. It's just the two lines. It's the line, the offspring of the serpent, and the offspring of the woman. And the Tower of Babel is this kind of brief parenthetical moment where God chose to say, here's something that happened as I preserved my line. Here's some of the ways men fall, and here's some of the ways I've extended my grace to them. So I'm going to read uh, Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city, and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people. They have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they'll do, and nothing that they propose to do will be impossible for them. So come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off the building of the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and as we consider this odd episode in human history, uh, we pray that we'd be changed by your word. 
uh, we come in here with full of self-preoccupation, full of anxiety, full of a desire to be pleased, to be loved, to be welcomed, full of a desire to have all of our wants and needs met. Dear God, I pray for a moment we'd set that down and we'd look at you and we'd see your grace and your mercy and it would be sweet to us. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, David Pallison, a Christian counselor, said this about the preaching of the gospel. When the gospel is preached, it doesn't give you what you want. It changes what you want. And that's really my hope and my prayer, actually, for myself, for my children, for my wife, and for all of y'all all the time. It's hope, I, hope, I really hope in some ways that we don't get what we want. And in fact, by the power of the Spirit and through the power of the gospel, what we, cha- what we want actually changes. And what's being described in that is, for lack of a better illustration, it's actually a great illustration if you're familiar with the movie The Matrix. What happens with Neo is he realizes he has a paradigm shift where what he thought about reality and everything he thought about reality all of a sudden was turned upside down and everything was completely different from what he thought. And that's actually what David Pallison is describing here. What David Pallison is saying is when Scripture comes to us and we encounter it, it's a paradigm shift. It changes everything the way we think about reality. It is a red pill, blue pill moment every time we come to Scripture. And then with that in mind, I want you to honestly kind of answer these questions to yourself as we open up Genesis 11 and consider it. And these are big questions because these are your reality questions. These are the questions that define your reality. And the first question is, it's simple and it's big. It's why are you here? And I really mean that. What are you doing here? What are you doing in this room? What are you doing at USC? What's your hope? What's your mission? What are you shooting for? What are you hoping to get out of this? And I want you to ponder that for a minute or two. Why did you choose your major? What are you hoping to get out of it? What are you hoping are going to come from the choices you made this past weekend, choices you're going to make during this week, and choices you're going to make this coming weekend? What are you hoping to become? What is your vision? What is your mission? And we all have this idealistic notion of our vision and mission, right, where we can you know, tell a teacher in a certain class or, or tell a counselor this kind of idealized version of our mission. This is what I want you to do. I want you to actually look back in your life and look at the way you expend your time and your resources and say, okay, ideally this is what I wish I was pursuing, but honestly this is what I'm really pursuing with my time. Can you be honest about the way you use your time? The way you use your resources, things like your energy and your money, and what they're mostly devoted to. And I want you to become aware of that so that we can encounter Scripture fruitfully, so that we can bring who we really are to Scripture and not just have a religious abstract discussion where we all kind of say, uh huh, yeah, and walk out of here back into our regular life and don't let Scripture encounter us. And it's important for us to answer those questions as we enter into this story about the Tower of Babel, because the Tower of Babel is really about the root of all of our hearts, the root of evil in all of our hearts, the fundamental sin issue that makes life frustrating and that breaks down our relationships, that breaks down our livelihood, that breaks down our happiness, that breaks us down psychologically and spiritually. Why are you here? What are you doing here? What are you hoping to get out of this USC thing? What are you hoping to get out of this religious thing? What are you hoping to get out of the group of friends you choose or the group of friends you choose to snub? And what I want us to see is that what we have in Tower of Babel is what we have in all the scriptures, that there's two paths. There's two communities. There's two cities. There's two lines. There's two offspring. 
What's being partic- uh, depicted particularly in the Tower of Babel is the story of the city of man. And what we have throughout all of Scripture is the story of God developing the city of God. In Babel, we have the city of man and the city of God. And what we're going to do tonight is we're going to kind of juxtapose those two ideas. If you look at your outline, we see what those two things are. The city of God, its purpose is His name, actually making His name great. The city of man, its purpose is to make our name great. The city of God, if that's His purpose, then its direction is always outward. The city of man, if its purpose is your greatness, then your direction is always inward. The city of God, the power, in order to actually pursue that purpose and move in that direction, it actually comes down out of heaven. And the city of man, in our attempt to pursue our own glory and make our own name great, relies on our strength. It's something that we derives from the earth up. And so I want us to feel the tension between these two things, the city of God and the city of man, your own personal kingdom and the kingdom of God. And the first thing I want us to see is, first of all, that the city of God is made, built for His name, the people of God are redeemed for His name and not for ours individually. The passage contains a remarkable consistency in the way the Bible thinks about sin. Because it's the presumption that man, this is what sin is, it's the presumption that man is at the center of the world, that you are actually the primary actor in your story. This is the way we naturally function. This is the way Adam and Eve entered into sin. What they wanted to do is they wanted God to become a cosmic errand boy, and they wanted to be the primary actor in their story. This is how Satan tempted them. He said, if you eat of this tree, God doesn't want you to eat of this tree because he knows if you eat of it, you'll become like him. The essence of sin is the presumption to sit in God's place, that we sit on the throne of our lives, and that God is our errand boy, right? He's our fortune cookie. He's the thing we rub and we shake so we can hope we can get some things that we want out of this life. They wanted to be like God. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. The other week at First Press, Sinclair Ferguson uh, reminded us of a quote that Frederick Nietzsche said that's just a really honest quote. We think it's arrogant, but actually he's just more honest than the rest of us. He said, Frederick Nietzsche didn't believe in God. He said, if there is a God, I could not bear to not be him. And we think of that as arrogant. I think he's just more honest than the rest of us. Because that's the way we live. We live inside our, our little perspective, our narrow perspective that we can only see through our own eyes, that we can only feel with our own heart. And in that perspective, the goal of our life is that everyone and everything works out to a certain way for our desired benefit. We sit at the center of it. The form of the people's sin at the Tower of Babel, come let us build a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. And we initially think, oh, that doesn't sound so bad, Right? We just want to make a name for ourselves. The fact that it doesn't sound too bad reveals how already ingrained our cultural sensibilities have been changed by the world. It's fine to want to make a name for yourself. So we're already comfortable with that language. It reveals how much is actually art and part of us. We don't even know it. Just how how legitimate we've already made self-aggrandizement, self-focus, and self-preoccupation. And what we have to recall is what God made us for in Genesis 1 and 2 who we are. In Genesis 1 and 2, especially Genesis 1, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Repetition is the way a Hebrew writer says, this is the main point here. 
And over and over again, we're told God created man in his own image, utterly distinct from the rest of creation. We're made in the likeness of God for the purpose of his glory, to reveal who he is to the world. We are to look and act like God to bring his goodness and his wisdom and his blessing to creation as his image bears so that when the world sees us, they see God. This is what man is for. Our purpose is to make his name great. And we haven't really encountered the meaning of that until it starts to unnerve you, until you realize that if that's true, all of the reasons why you're here start to fall apart. All of your answers to those questions contradict this. All of my answers to those questions contradict this. If this doesn't unnerve you, if this doesn't rally you, then you haven't encountered what Scripture is telling you at this point because it strikes at the heart of who we are. The purpose of God's city, the purpose of His people is that they make Him known to one another, to others, and to creation itself that His name be the name that the world thinks of and praises when they see us. What does that mean? What does it mean to make His name great? This is, this is not tricky, abstract Bible language that we have to figure out. It means what it says. Who do people notice when they see you? That's what it means. Is your longing for them to notice you or the one in whose image you are made? Do you want people to notice your wit, your brains, your sophistication, your fashion, your body? God's people want the world to see them and not go, oh my gosh, those people are wonderful. They're just so great. God's people long for the world to see them and say somebody did something amazing to that person. We see this principle at work all the time. I have four little girls. I set my name upon them. They're woods. And we send them off to Sunday school. We send them off to school. We send them off to the playground. You know what happens? They run around with my name in those places. And they behave certain ways. Sometimes good and sometimes bad. And when they behave those ways, do you know what people think? People think, I wonder what their father's like. When they see them misbehave, they think, They must have a bad father. When they see them behave well, they think, oh, they must have a wonderful father. We get this principle. We get this principle. uh, It's active in and around us. People look at my children and think of me, whether it might be good or it might be bad. If you've been a member of some kind of organization, I was a Boy Scout growing up, which I guess is no longer cool. Is that right? (laughs) Um, It's going to come back around because counterculture is in, so to be counter-counterculture would be to be like a Boy Scout, right? Anyways, um, if you've ever been a member of an organization like that, though, when you put on that uniform, your personal identity dissolves. Nobody sees it anymore. Nobody cares that you're a soccer player. Nobody cares what your GPA is. Nobody cares where you are in kind of the social status lineup of high school or junior high. Nobody even cares what your family name is. When they see you, you have a new name set upon you, and what people see and say according to their behavior is, Boy Scouts are like, however you've act. This principle is at work all the time. God has set his image in his people for the purpose of making his name great. And if you feel like that's an impossible task, I'm with you. It's hard. But tonight we've sang three songs. Can you name... Any of the songwriters? I can't. So it's possible. We can't name any of those men. They made God's name great before us tonight. 
So what's being described in this passage is just pride, which is self-preoccupation. It's just pride and narcissism. It's I want to look good. I want to perform well academically. I want to socially get noticed. I want to be welcomed. These people make me unhappy. These people make me happy. It's whatever your I want to's and I need to's are. They should love me. They should accept me. They should do this for me. They owe me. Do you see the common element in the way we answer those important foundational questions and the way we feel all throughout the day? It's me. And if that's true, and as long as self-preoccupation dominates our lives and is the paradigm through which we view reality, every group, whether it's Christian or not, every community you're going to hate. Unless you can get them to think about, the way, think about you the way you wish they would think about you, and then you'll buy into them for a while as long as they worship kind of the image of you you want. Because you'll think, for this brief moment, at least they're here for me and they're on my boat. Do you get that if we're all enamored with our own name, if we all walk in here and our goal in here is to have our social anxieties done away with by the community we sense here, to have everybody approve of us, have everybody like us a certain way, that if you came in here with your own agenda to make your own self-preoccupation and anxiety go away for you to feel better about by yourselves, then we all walked in enamored with ourselves. And if everybody walked in here enamored with themselves, that actually means none of us give a rip about anybody in here. You see the irony in it? If we walk into a group and we all expected to be loved on by the group and that was everybody's approach when they walked into the room, nobody gets anything out of it. If everybody walks in that way, it's foolishness. Right? All we are to each other are kind of comparison models, so we can either feel better or feel worse about who we are. Self-preoccupation actually means nobody cares about you. Desiring to make your name great, as we all desire to make our name great, that actually means nobody cares about anybody. This is just pride. C.S. Lewis describes it in Mere Christianity. And he talks about how it's the chief of sins. He says, pride leads to every other vice. It's the complete anti-God state of mind. And this might seem exaggerated to you, but, if, but uh, think it over. I pointed out a moment ago that the more pride one had, the more one disliked pride in others. In fact, if you want to find out how proud you are, the easiest way is to ask yourself, how much do I dislike it when other people snub me or refuse to take any notice of me? or patronize me, or show off. The point is that each person's pride is in competition with everyone else's pride. Self-preoccupation means that all the appearances of kindness and patience we have with each other, it's not real kindness and patience. It's just something that we've all kind of bought into. It's just each other enduring each other for the sake of our own name. Parents do this with their kids where they pretend to really, really care for their kids, but actually they're in it for themselves all the time, right? We call these people Little League Dads, right? They just care about their kids so much and they just want them to succeed. No, they're there for themselves. We're in a lot of our relationships for ourselves. We're even nice in our relationships for ourselves. That's why we can't tell the truth to each other about the way we really feel. And pride can be, it can be big and loud, but it can also be quiet and subdued. 
It can be the big person directing attention, the big personality person directing attention their way with their one-up stories. Or it can be the quiet person silently thinking of how they're superior over the loud idiots. It's not one personality. This is me, y'all. This is me on Tuesday nights. I want y'all to make me like me. That's what I want to happen every Tuesday night. And y'all suck at it. (laughs) Because you can't do it. You're failing at it because that's not what I was made for. I wasn't made to have a great name. I was made to make God's name great. A friend of mine is a, good YouTube, a big U2 fan, and um, he went to the most recent tour. And he was telling me about during the concert, there's this moment where um, he read a Rolling Stone article about it where Bono says it goes from Act 1 to Act 2, and there's kind of this real dramatic shift in the perspective of the concert. And they go from this song about kind of what Bono says, it's about discovering yourself, it's about overcoming obstacles, it's about introspection, it's about dealing with kind of your personal hedonism and your personal demons, and it's called I'm Gonna Go Crazy If I Don't Go Crazy Tonight, and all of a sudden the song shifts into Sunday, Bloody Sunday. And what Bono says about it, because it's a real dramatic shift, it goes from this kind of deep introspection, dealing with your own self, into this, uh, what happens actually on stage is all of a sudden they start showing images of violence in Iran. And this is what Bono says about it. He says, um, the first part's about your introspection and your personal obstacles, and then all of a sudden you see something from a totally different world. You see reality splashed against your own self-obsession. And your personal odyssey is thrown in harsh relief with what's actually going on in the world. And this is what Bono says, all the saddest people I know are people who are focused on their own well-being. I, 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 me, me, me. And this is what he says, the way I found a root out of depression and out of idiocy has been through the harsh juxtaposition of other lives around me, whether they're near or far. What's going on in the concert during that moment, what Bono is saying is we're stuck in ourselves and we're concerned with our own well-being and we're unhappy. And what needs to happen is our eyes have to be drawn out from ourselves for a moment and our heart's eye has to be drawn out, our mind's eye has to be drawn out from staring at ourselves for a moment in order to be sane. Self-preoccupation is killing us and the answer is humility. And we, and I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I want to clarify what humility is. Humility is not self-debasement. Humility is not saying I'm not good at something you're good at. Humility is not even not receiving praise. When you get to the new heavens and the new earth, at the end of your life, in glory, God is going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. You will receive praise from God. We have all these kind of idiotic notions about humility, about debasing ourselves, it's, it's false modesty, it's not receiving praise, it's pretending we're not good at something we're good at. It's not what humility is. The way Tim Keller says it is this. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less. Humility is not self-debasement. It's actually self-forgetfulness. It's forgetting to think about yourself all the time. In Philippians 2, the way Paul describes it, he says, If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. This is what he says. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Do you see what he's saying? This is what humility is. 
It's just not thinking about yourself all the time. It's being concerned with other people. Being concerned with their hurt, their pain, their sin. Serving them, loving them. Humility, I'm not saying I'm not good at something. Humility is just not thinking about you. Humility means you stop asking, why am I unhappy? What can these people do to make me happy? What, who can make me happy? What can make me happy? Instead, of your questions become, who is God? What is he like? What is he doing? And y'all, this is freedom. This is freedom. This frees the Christian from the constraining social fears that control us all in this room at this moment right now. This is why nobody says amen in Presbyterian circles because we still live in the fear of God. Either that or all Presbyterian preachers are bad preachers. I think there are a couple of good ones out there. So we should be saying amen at First Presbyterian Sundays because he's a good one. But y'all, this is freedom. Freedom from self-preoccupation. You're not here for you. Your happiness is not the goal. Your comfort's not your goal. You're here to make another known. You're free from all the social and performance anxiety that self-preoccupation feeds on. And it means that you get to walk in every social situation and not think, oh my gosh, are these people going to like me? Am I safe here? Am I better than them? You get to walk into every room thinking, how can I bless these people and have the blessing Jesus has shown me? And C.S. Lewis describes the transition from pride to freedom this way. Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble person that he will be what most people call humble nowadays. It's not going to be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who's always telling you that, of course, he's a nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you had to say. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. And if anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell them the first step. The first step is to realize that you're proud. And it's a big step, too. At least, nothing can be done before it. And if you think you're not conceited, it means you're very conceited. Indeed. So we're made to be free from self-preoccupation. Self-preoccupation is a thing that's killing us all. city of God is not about your name. It's about God's name. But it has a direction. It has a force. It has a mission and a direction, and it moves outward, not inward. See, the social direction of self-preoccupation you see here. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let's make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Self-preoccupation is what makes our cliques in our inner circles, and in our socially isolating groupings that need to have others affirm your self-worth for you. And there's no better way to do it than to feel like you're a part of a group that other people are on the outside of. Pride, or making our name great, measures its success by creating an exclusive group so that it can look out and be reminded of the people who aren't a part of it. And we all have two positions. We're actually prideful two ways about it. You're either in a group, but of course you never feel like you're on the inside, inside of the group. You always feel like there's another inner part of the group, right? But you're in the group, and you're insecure because you're not a part of the inner group. Or you're standing on the outside, and you're actually simultaneously jealous and self-righteous at the same time about not feeling like you're a part of the group. You want to be a part of it, but you kind of hate them at the same time. 
See, it's our self-preoccupation that drives the maddening inner ring, outer ring, click frustration that we all go through. I need people to surround me so I can feel okay. If I don't have them, then I'm bitter and jealous at the same time. When people text in front of me, I feel left out and I hate it. Does anybody else feel this? Is this just me? Is this my deep insecurity? (laughs) That's a social grouping. That's a click I hate. You can text your friends. The point is not that texting is wrong. The point is, do you see how insecure we are, how self-preoccupied we are? We see another inside group we want to be a part of. We hate it. We're bitter and jealous at the same time. And so our social groupings are still based on self-preoccupation, and we want to form little enclaves of like-minded people and keep away from who's out there, because in here is safe. And that's neglecting, again, Scripture's understanding of sin, which is the evil's not out there, it's in here. It's in us. The enclave mentality is the opposite of the way we were made, uh, of the, what we were designed for from the very beginning, before sin entered the world. What did God say after he made man in his image? He said, I made your image, now multiply and fill the earth. His purpose was for us to go out to actually disperse. And even after sin near the world, and then when God started over with Noah, the first thing he says to Noah when he gets off the ark is that Noah, now multiply, fill the earth, team over the earth, send my image bearers everywhere, make my name known over all the earth. God's city, the city of God, is outward. It's outward focus. And if our identity and security is in him, we cease being a group that looks inward, hoping, huddling together, wanting to be on the inside, and we can find some relief from social anxiety. Instead, we can be a gathered people who disperse. The church is not this huddled mass shielding ourselves from the outside evil world, inward faced with our inside jokes and our jargon and our staying away from bad people and our Christian friends and our Christian music and our Christian diet. They have these two. The church is a group of people journeying side by side seeking to bring blessing to the world and to draw people into our journey. When the, in the New Testament, when Jesus talks about the gates of hell will not prevail, the image is not this, the church as this kind of huddled fortress just hoping the world doesn't overcome it. The gates of hell are actually the defensive gates of hell. The image is actually the church overwhelming and defeating sin and evil in the world. Us going forth arm in arm, outward face, blessing the world, making the name of God known. City of God is not a clique, an inner circle. It's a mission organization. And you're not called to live a privatized religious life in a huddled mass separated from everybody else. Your calling, brothers and sisters, if you're in Jesus, your calling is to be a Christian at the University of South Carolina. That's why you're here, is to be a Christian here. That's your answer to the question. That's the answer the Bible gives you. And if you want to know what that looks like, it's simple. Stop thinking about your own social safety. Stop obsessing over your own happiness. Stop believing in the idiotic lie that we all believe in, that we can make our name great, and go to people. It's very simple. This is stuff you all know. This is stuff from Scripture. Go love people. Live. You don't have to live in complete fear of their opinions. You see, we look at our classmates, and we look at our roommates, our acquaintances, maybe even professors, and they're all social barometers of our own social acceptability. Who cares? Go love on them. Go give your time and resources to people. Invite them to lunch. Listen to their stories. Let them tell them about you. Go to the movie. 
Tell them about Jesus. Do your homework. You want to blow professors' minds? Tell them that you cheated. That's what it means to be a Christian at USC. Be generous with your time with your money. It's all here. Y'all know the story. That's what it means to be a Christian at USC. Our collective goal is not to hide our little group for four years away from the evil masses at college. Our goal is to make God's name great. For the students and for the faculty at the University of South Carolina say, we're so glad we have Jesus people here. They're a blessing to this community. That's why you're here. And that's a tall order. And we're all struggling with it and recognize that. And that's why we've got to figure out how we have the power to do that. What could drive us to be people of character and integrity? People who make God's name great. And what you've got to see, and it's in verse 11, it's in chapter 11, but it's all throughout Scripture, is that the power comes down from heaven and not up from earth. In this story, what we have is we have the goodness of God's frustration. The kindness and the grace of actually not giving us the things we want. Verse 5, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the, Lord, which the children of man had built. There are two directions. There's, there's, there's kind of directional themes in this. The man was building buildings up. And what's interesting is they're building a great tower in commemoration of their great name. And the way God encounters it is the Lord comes down. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower. Verse 7, come let us go down there and confuse their language. God's giving us humorous sarcasm right here, in case you're not picking up on it. They're building the biggest, greatest building ever as a monument to their greatness, and God gets sarcastic. He's saying, oh, how about that? (laughs) That's the image that Scripture's painting for us right now. Oh, months and oh, just thousands of y'all working out. You're doing so well, you know. Oh, the yeah, galaxies. Well, that took me like half a syllable, you know. <laughs> but I can understand that seems like a big project too. That's the irony. That's the sarcasm Scripture's giving us right now. That the Lord had to come down to see their greatness. And that's a brief reminder to all of us in this room. There aren't any big shots. Nobody in here is the stuff. You're not world beaters. You're not a superstar, and even the world leaders and the superstars, they're not what they think they are. You can work your whole life. You can exceed your potential. And the truth of the matter is, most of us aren't going to remember each other on our deathbed. Not many of y'all's names will be on many of your hearts and minds. Y'all are going to forget most of each other's names by the end. We can't even make our name great amongst our friends. My name is done. I have four girls. That means the Britain Wood Line's over. It really is. It's gone. In two generations, it won't exist. Most of us, I can't name all of my great-grandparents. That means when I'm a great-grandparent, the Britain Wood thing's over for eternity. We just can't make our name great. We're just not big stuff, even in our best moments. This is the irony of the text, but... What does it mean when God sits there and he surveys? He comes down, he sees the tower, and he says, Behold, they're one people. They have one language. This is the only beginning of what they will do, and nothing they propose to do will now be impossible. So come, let us go down and confuse their language so they may understand, so they won't understand one another's speech. It means that if he doesn't frustrate their language, 
that they'll go on and on and be more confirmed and more entrenched in their self-love. That's what he means when he says nothing will be impossible for them. No limits of self-love and self-preoccupation will be impossible for them. They'll be confirmed in their own minds of their own greatness. And so what God does in verses 7 through 9 is the kindness of frustration. And so we all get this. God has gloriously and graciously frustrated a lot of our hopes and dreams. We're not becoming the image of the person we wish we could be, our idealistic vision and mission. And that is God's good grace that we're not becoming that person. He's frustrating our attempts to make our name great. That's a good thing. Some of y'all know this because I've actually told you I'm praying for you to get a B. I pray for some people in this group. I pray for some people to get a B, kind of in a different direction, but I pray for some people <laughs> to get a B. I want God to frustrate your dream image of yourself. Pray for some of y'all to gain weight. I pray for God to frustrate your image of yourself. Some of y'all pray that you get caught. Some of God's greatest blessings in my life have been getting caught. Because all of a sudden I couldn't I couldn't convince people anymore that I was as great as I thought I was. I hope that God frustrates all of us in our selfish pursuits. And that we don't get too proficient at being obsessed with ourselves. And that's what God does here. Man's trying to build himself up, his self-esteem, and God's mercy comes down. It's God coming down and frustrating their languages. And in that, he's extending them kindness. There's a directional aspect to this passage in all of Scripture. The power for the Christian doesn't arouse, uh, arise from the ground up, from pulling up your bootstraps to get it done. It comes from God's mercy coming down. God came down and frustrated their self-preoccupation and His goodness. And He birthed out a language. And you know what happened? They all woke up the next day. They all spoke differently. And they gave up on the project. Because they couldn't communicate. And the Hebrew word for Babel actually means to confuse languages. It's actually in the English language now too. Babel. We use that word. I don't understand my children when they babble. I don't understand. We don't understand each other when we babble. And this is the city that would go on to become Babylon, actually, which would still be a place of great evil and wickedness in the world and a lot of suffering. But do you notice what happened when God frustrated their plans of their own little self-involved, self-obsessed, how can I make myself happy, quick-fished life? They dispersed. Almost against their will, God enabled them to begin doing what they were designed to do. What they were made to do, to fill the earth, to multiply, to disperse, to go and show the image of God forth and make His name great over all the earth. The power to change came from Him. It actually came from Him frustrating their attempt to make their name great. Now we're all looking in the mirror for our security. To make our name great, or at least just to be happy. And we're all looking at each other whether it's professionally or academically or socially, we're all looking at each other, hoping that we can find a group of people that'll make me believe about myself what I wish was true. And do you see how empty and frustrating our life's going to be? This is the Lord's frustrating blessing to us. You're not a big shot. Nobody cares about your GPA. Tomorrow, your group of friends might shift a little bit and you might find yourself on the outside. 
Nobody's going to remember your wit. And the body you're killing yourself to have is going to die. So I hope you have something more. And God offers something more. God comes down and offers more. In Zephaniah 3, the prophets begin to prophesy about it. At that time, that's what the prophet says, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. Acts 2, 1 through 14. It's an episode maybe many of you know as Pentecost. The day of Pentecost arrived. This is after Jesus had come, died for the sins of those who had trusted in Him, risen from the dead, and gone up into heaven. And this is the Pentecost. The day of Pentecost arrived. They were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of, as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation, under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we each hear his own native language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans, Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all they were, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But some of them mock said they are filled with new wine. Some people just thought they were drunk. That's kind of humorous. See what God did? He sent down His Holy Spirit. What gave them the power to proclaim the name of God to all nations was the Holy Spirit coming down. Jesus came down and died for our sins. He went in the ground for our blessing and then he rose again and God enabled his church to then go in all sorts of languages in a pure speech, make his name known. What it means by pure speech is not that they all spoke the same language, but in all kinds of different languages they proclaim the same God. And a rushing wind comes down. And fires, uh, tongues of fire came and rested on their heads. And what wind and fire symbolize in Scripture is the presence of God. This is how His presence is depicted in the Old Testament. God is setting His name on His people again. And He's restoring them to their image-bearing purpose. And He's granting them language skills so that they can go and in a pure speech make known the name of their Father. This is what you're here for. This is why you're at USC. This is why you're in your classes. It's so that you might think, speak, and love, and act in such a way that people wonder who your father is. And the ability and the power to do so is from him, is by his spirit. <coughs> of late, I've been getting frustrated with video games. Um, <coughs> but I've realized there's something really right about, the, about why guys play video games. There's actually something, there's, there's a kernel of something good there. And what video games have allowed people to do <laughs> um, video games give you a vision and a mission. You know what to do and you know where to go and you can accomplish things. This is why 
part of what drives the whole video gaming thing is scoring statistics, accumulating powers, weapons, whatever it is. Because you can see yourself accomplish something. And I want to suggest this. The reason they're so appealing, the reason sports, video games, these kinds of things are so appealing is because they briefly give you direction and purpose. For a moment, you have a mission and a vision, you know how to accomplish it. You don't know why you're at school, but you know what to do when you play Call of Duty, right? Completely baffled by what it means to be a freshman, sophomore, junior, senior at USC, but you know what to do when the video game comes on. You even have a screen name, right? Next to the screen name are statistics that declare whether or not your name is good or great, right? Those things are a watered-down mimicry of what it means to be human. I get the appeal. The appeal's in me. But they're a watered-down mimicry of what it means to be human. In Scripture, see that in Jesus, you are made for a higher mission, for a lofty and more noble goal. It's to make your Father's name great. And if you're confused and don't know how, I get how you feel because that's how I feel all the time because I'm supposed to do that professionally. I actually get paid to make my Father's name great. And I'm utterly baffled by how to do it. But know this, the power to do so comes from Him. And all that's required, David actually reminds us of what is required in Psalm 51, which I go to often. This is David struggling with self-preoccupation and trying to turn back to God. This is David repenting for a sin. He's obsessed with himself. He's done what he's always wanted to do. And he's struggling to figure out what it means to no longer be dominated by self-preoccupation and turn to God. What is it that he has to do? What is it that he has to offer God? And this is what he says. You don't delight in sacrifice or I'd love it. You'll not be pleased with a burnt offering. This is what God demands with you. This is what God needs of you in order to use you to make his name great. The sacrifices of God are just a broken heart. A broken and contrite heart. That's all he requires. And he comes down and he works wonders with that. Let's pray.